Well, this was a big weekend in uh, Iowa. You know what happened in Iowa this weekend, right? Yeah, exactly. The presidential campaigning season began. And with presidential campaigning comes seemingly endless polling. Prepare yourself for phone calls from numbers in area codes that you don't know anyone. And they will call you. And they will attempt to get you on the phone and ask you questions as the political candidates feverishly try to figure out what they need to say in order to get your vote. I don't know that anybody really likes surveys and polling, huh? But interestingly, Ligonier Ministries last year completed a very, very important survey. Actually, it was really kind of a massive undertaking on their part. They, they funded it, and it was done in conjunction with another group who actually did the, the polling. But they surveyed 3,000 Americans. That's a very large sample size. 3,000 Americans participated in this study. It was entitled, uh, The State of Theological Awareness Among Americans. That was the study. 3,000 participants. These 3,000 of your fellow Americans self-designated their relationship to the Christian gospel. That is, they didn't seek to survey a particular uh, slice of society. They allowed people themselves to designate how they related to the Christian gospel, which, of course, might be I'm not related to it at all, up to those who professed a very strong commitment to the Christian gospel. But it was a massive study, and the results of it were really quite enlightening, quite interesting to get a view of the world in which we live, how our neighbors think, how our co-workers think, how our family members think. I have for you this morning just three questions from that survey, and they are the questions that relate directly to the person of Jesus Christ. So the first question, and I have it for you there. The question is, there will be people in heaven who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And they ask people to react to that. Strongly disagree 30% of the respondents. And disagree somewhat 11%. Not sure 20%. Agree somewhat 20%. Agree strongly, 20%. Conclusion? 60% of Americans agree or are not sure whether there will be people in heaven who have never heard of Jesus Christ. That means the majority of Americans believe that the way to heaven is not exclusive to Christ. Second question. Jesus is fully God and has a divine nature, and Jesus is fully man and has a human nature. 
Please respond. Agree strongly, 37%. Agree somewhat, 23%. Disagree somewhat, 10%. Disagree strongly, 12%. Not sure, 18%. Conclusion. 40% disagree or are not sure whether Jesus is fully God and has a divine nature, and then Jesus is fully man and has a human nature. Four out of ten Americans. Third question. God the Father is more divine than Jesus Christ. God the Father is more divine than Jesus Christ. Agree strongly, 16%. Agree somewhat, 17%. Disagree somewhat, 14%. Disagree strongly, 30%. Not sure, 23%. Conclusion. 56% of Americans agree or are not sure with regard to the statement that God the Father is more more divine than Jesus Christ. That's the state of the world in which we live. And what that means is that there is a significant amount of confusion in our society with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And half or more of the Americans are confused about that question. That means we've got a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. It may well mean that even within our own home, we have work to do. We have work to do. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 22, we will be looking together at verses 41 to 46. I've entitled the message for us this morning, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We are returning again to our study of the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And in particular, this passage this morning, 41 to 46, is the final public confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities of Judaism. This is the final confrontation. Now, interestingly, about six months before the events that happened on this day that we'll look at here in just a minute or two, six months prior to this, you'll remember that Jesus took his 12 disciples. They were in Galilee at the time, and they headed north from the the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, heading as far north, really, as they could conceivably go to the area of, of Caesarea, Philippi. And Jesus took his disciples there because he wanted to get away from the press of the crowds. He wanted to get away from the possibility of imminent arrest. He wanted to spend time with his disciples. He wanted to to train them, to teach them, to prepare them for the final six months of his earthly ministry, which he knew would result in the week that we are studying here and ultimately, of course, in his crucifixion. So he needed to prepare them. And he took them up there, you'll remember, and as he, as he got away with his disciples, Matthew chapter 16 and beyond, recounts the events of that time, Jesus asked them a really interesting question, a very important question. 
He said to them, who do you say that I am? You remember that? Who do you say that I am? Peter, spokesman for the apostolic band, speaking under influence of the Spirit of God, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He makes an incredibly profound, incredibly insightful statement about the person of Jesus Christ. Well, here in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, and to the end of this chapter, six months later, Jesus is going to essentially ask the same question. He's going to ask the question again, essentially. And this time he's going to ask the Pharisees. He's going to ask it of the Pharisees. They are the instructors of the nation of Israel. They are the teachers of the nation. It is the Pharisees who control the synagogue system of Judaism. They are the teachers. He's going to ask the teachers, who do you say that I am? And beyond and through the teachers, that is asking them directly, he's also going to address the assembled multitudes. For there is a massive crowd that has gathered and they have been enjoying the debates that have been going on between Jesus and the leadership of the nation as a sort of spectator sport. And so he's going to ask the Pharisees, but he's going to also be asking the crowds, who do you say that I am? And the tragedy of all of this is instead of getting an answer even remotely resembling Peter's, all he gets is crickets, silence, no response, no response. This interchange that is narrated for us here in Matthew 22 is the final interchange between Jesus and and his enemies. This is it. This is their last chance to repent of their obstinate unbelief. This is their final opportunity to turn in faith and embrace the Messiah of Israel. For most, this is the point of no return. This will be the point of no return. Following this confrontation, Matthew narrates us, beginning in chapter 23, Jesus bringing down the most fearful judgments upon the leadership of the nation. This is their final chance. Now, he brings the Pharisees, and I say through them, the crowds, to the point of decision here by the means of three interlocking questions. Three related and interlocking questions. Each question leads to the next question. That's why I call them interlocking. And these questions are drawn from the clear teaching of the Word of God. He takes them to the Word of God. So I want to look at these questions with you this morning, and there are three of them, and we will look at them together. And as we look at the questions he asks the the Pharisees and the crowds, we also are brought to a point of decision. It brings us to a point of decision with regard to our understanding of Jesus, the Messiah. 
What do we believe about Jesus, the Messiah? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So take a look at the text with me. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Crickets is the only response he gets. As I say, following this in chapter 23, Jesus will pronounce a series of woes upon the Pharisees. And a series of woes upon those who are aligned with the Pharisees and following the theology and doctrine of the Pharisees. This is the last chance for the nation. This is Tuesday. Likely Tuesday afternoon. Jesus is going to send everyone home Tuesday afternoon to think about what he has said. The gospel records are silent with regard to the events of Wednesday. He sends them home to think. The next time they are gathered together, they will be asked a question. And tragically, the nation will respond, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be upon us and our children. This is a major turning point. A major turning point. The first question we need to look at together here in verse 41. Jesus asked them a question about ancestry. He begins with a question about ancestry. Now, it's interesting here because throughout the day, Jesus has, has been responding to the incessant attacks of his enemies. They have been coming at him. First, it's like a tag team wrestling match. First, the, the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, then the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees. And they each fall back, regroup, come up with a new strategy, and they come back at him again. And they're seeking to trap him into saying something to discredit him, either with the masses or saying something seditious to which they can appeal to the Roman authorities to have him carried away and executed. They want him gone. And so they have come at him with all sorts of trivia and technicalities, and they've attempted to trap him in these. And he has successfully evaded every one of them, turning them back on them, and in the process, teaching for those who have 
ears to hear truth about who he is and about the word of God. The most recent, of course, was last week in verses 34 to 40, where they had tried to draw him into the debate about the greatest of the commandments. And you remember how he responded. So now it changes. Jesus now uses the opportunity of the gathered Pharisees and the crowds. And the crowds by this time are substantial. He uses this opportunity to turn the tables and to go from defense to offense. He goes from defense to offense. And he does this by asking them to carefully consider what do the scriptures say about Messiah. Now look at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered there, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think? What do you think? He's asking them to give some serious consideration. Ponder. Don't give me a quick answer. Think about this. Think about it. Jesus is driving here, as one author says, straight to the very heart of the conflict. Straight to the very heart of the conflict. And the conflict is the divine character of the messianic king whom he claims to be. Whom he claims to be. Think about it. Who is the Messiah? Who is he? Verse 42, notice how they respond, and they respond quickly. They respond immediately. No consultation, no huddle, no search the scriptures. No, let's talk about this a little before we answer the question. No, just blurt it right out. They said to him, the son of David. Who is the Messiah? They said to him, the son of David. Now, that answer is technically correct. It is technically correct. Even formally correct. It's just inadequate. It's inadequate. The Old Testament clearly reveals what they have said. So, for example, Jeremiah chapter 23. One of many places. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 The prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So they get part of the answer. The son of David. It is, it is repeatedly revealed in the Old Testament that the Messiah comes from the house of David. He is the son of David. The problem with the answer is it's shallow. It is a shallow answer. It is an answer that, that fails to, to contemplate the greater witness of the Old Testament. It's a simplistic answer answer to the question and thus it is a faulty answer to the question what they've done is is to fail to take seriously the entire scope of the word of god 
the numerous Old Testament texts that point to the Messiah as more than a mere man. More than a mere man, but actually as God himself. As God himself. So they say to him, the son of David. And Jesus responds to that hasty answer by basically saying, in effect, is that it? Is that all? Think again. Think again. Think again. So he asks them another question. He asks them the second question. And the second question, the first is a question of ancestry. He comes back at them with a second question. It's a question about authority. First, ancestry, they don't get it. So he comes back at them with a question about authority. Verse 43. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Then how does David, in the spirit, call him Lord? Their answer is he is the son of David. He says to them, well, if he's merely the son of David, which is what their answer communicates, then how, then how can David call him Lord? If the Messiah is is merely the human descendant of David, then then how could King David, notice Jesus says, under, under the direct inspiration of the Spirit of God, so it rules out the possibility that David made a mistake here, right? This is this is the Spirit of God who does not lie, inspired David here as a prophet to, to record this. That his descendant is his Lord. His descendant is his Lord. And the word Lord here is a a title for deity. If he is merely the human descendant of the king, then how? In what way? In what sense? Is he God? Now, Jesus cites Psalm 110 and verse 1 in in support of this question, right? Verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If he's merely the human descendant of David... Then how does King David, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, write this amazing statement recorded in Psalm 110 and verse 1? Now, as John told us earlier, Psalm 110 was written by King David about a thousand years before this. Psalm 110. And 10 is an acknowledged messianic psalm. It was acknowledged as such then. It is it's still acknowledged as such to this day because it is a messianic psalm. It is the most quoted 
of the Psalms in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Psalm 110. It speaks of the exaltation of the king, the messianic king, and further reveals that the king is a priest. It's loaded with, with amazing revelation. Now, specifically here in, in verse 44, what Jesus is citing, which is verse 1 of Psalm 110, David is prophetically recording a conversation between the God of Abraham, that would be Jehovah or Yahweh, and Messiah, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is Messiah. And this is an interesting conversation that David records. Because in this conversation, Yahweh invites Messiah to enjoy a place of public authority equal to his own, right? Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Until the consummation of the age. Sit at my right hand until the consummation of the age. That is, until I, that is Yahweh, subjugate your enemies to you. The psalm says, I, I make them a footstool for your feet. That may be how you remember it, right? Here it says, until they are beneath your feet. It is the same concept. The ancient Near East... The enemies of the king would be brought into public subjection to the king by him, by them kind of laying down or kneeling down and putting his feet upon them, often upon their necks. It was just a symbolic way of saying they were in complete subjugation to the king. So what is being conveyed here is that the God of the universe is saying to the Messiah, Sit here in this place of honor equal with me until all of your enemies are, are flat before you and your foot is upon their neck. Your foot is upon your neck. They will be subjugated to you. Now, by the way, the Pharisees and the crowds would have absolutely agreed with this citation of Psalm 110 and what it means. There would have been no disagreement at all. They wouldn't have disagreed about who the players were, who the Lord was, and, and you know, the Lord said to my Lord, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have uh, had any problems with that. They would have agreed to all of that. The problem is they missed the implication of it. They missed the implication of the most amazing Prophecy, Because what they had overlooked is the fact that David, whose human descendant will be Messiah, calls his own descendant, what? Lord. He calls him Lord. Now you're reading the, you know, you're reading your, your Old Testament here. You're reading Psalm 109. You finish 109. You get to 110, you know, and you read that first verse and... Man, you should sit bolt upright. What? Fathers don't refer to their sons as their lords. Particularly in that culture. Particularly in that culture. The father never refers to his descendant as greater than himself. Never. 
particularly when the father making the statement is David, the greatest of the Old Testament monarchs. This is David in in whom sovereignty resides. He is the great king of Israel. He does not say to his human son, you are my Lord. Never, never. And he's speaking under inspiration of the Spirit of God, so he's not confused. What that means is, is you've got to stop. And you've got to say, what is he communicating here? What, what is he conveying here? In what way could David's son possess a higher authority than him when David was at the time he wrote this, the greatest authority of the nation, the king of Israel? In what way? Now, I, um, I imagine, a little sanctified imagining here, I think. I imagine at this point, the Pharisees' jaws, like, dropped open. That's usually what happens when people are speechless, by the way. Mouth just sort of falls open, but nothing comes out. I think there is a, there is a blank look on their face. I think they actually uh, are beginning to sort of scratch their gray beards. Maybe their heads, too. They got nothing. They got nothing. Notice Jesus doesn't let them walk away like this, though. He's, he's not content. Jesus is not content to leave it here. I believe it's uh, in his mercy. I think there's a display of mercy here, by the way. And and that is he's going to continue to force and drive the point home until it is absolutely unavoidable. So I think there's mercy here, but there's more than mercy here. There's an apologetic here, and we'll spell that out in a minute. But he's going to drive this point home by asking them the third interlocking question. The third question. He's essentially going to ask the same thing, but he's going to alter the form of the question. That's verses 45 and 46. He's going to ask a question about acceptability. Acceptability. First question was about a question about ancestry. The second question was a question about authority. This question is a question about acceptability. Acceptability. And just hang on to that and you can... See how it plays out. So after citing Psalm 110, verse 1 to them, which they would not have objected to, Jesus comes back at him, verse 45. He says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is Messiah, Lord and Son? Lord of David, Son of David. 
We sang it here just a few minutes ago, remember? David's son, yet David's Lord. By the way, that question is the tip of the iceberg of the most profound mystery. The most profound mystery. The Apostle Paul calls it over in, I believe it's 2 Timothy, the the mystery of godliness. How can Messiah be David's son, yet David's Lord? Answer? He is human. And he is divine. He is human. And he is divine. That's a mouthful. That is an absolute mouthful. The God-man, fully human, fully divine. By the way, this is not some philosophical musings that arose several centuries later in the early church. It was the testimony of those who knew him best. Jews who who lived with him, who ate with him, who, who ministered with him, who slept beside him around the campfire, who knew he was a man. Jews who, if they knew anything, knew that there is only one God. One God. Monotheists. Listen, if the Babylonian captivity accomplished anything among the ancient people of God, it accomplished this. It destroyed their idolatry. They went into Babylonian captivity as terrible idolaters. They came out of the Babylonian captivity committed to monotheism, to the one true God of Israel. They would die before they would give it up. And it is these strict monotheists who come to the conclusion, right? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, the reality that he is of the lineage of the house of David means he's human. The fact that David calls him Lord means he is divine. What that together means is that Messiah is in a place of authority over Israel's greatest king. David is the great king of Israel. All other kings are lesser kings than David. 
right? You can read, you know, you read the, the, the accounts of the kings and even the good kings. It says they did good, such and such is good, but not like their father who? David. He is always the standard they go back to. He is the greatest of the kings, David. And yet Messiah is in a place of authority over Israel's great king. And here's the twist on it. Because Jesus is that Messiah, he is therefore in authority over the leadership of the nation of Israel. If Messiah is over David, their greatest king, then Jesus as Messiah is in authority over them. He's in authority over them. This is the answer, by the way, to the question that started this whole process back in chapter 21 and verse 23. Tuesday morning when Jesus entered the temple, right? Monday he had gone in and cleansed the temple. You remember that. Tuesday, he goes back, and and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus doesn't answer them. Not directly. Here he does. Here he does. By what authority are you doing these things? I am Messiah. And Messiah has authority over the greatest king of Israel. I have authority over you. Jesus is declaring that he is God. This is an open declaration that he is God. That gives him authority over the temple of God. In unambiguous terms, he is declaring to them that he is God in human flesh. By the way, this is not the first time. He has made this claim repeatedly, repeatedly over the years. In word And indeed, throughout his public ministry, he has claimed to be God in human flesh. Now, he's had all kinds of run-ins with the leadership of Israel, right? All kinds of conflicts with them. But the singular point of contention between him and them was his oft-repeated claim to be God. His claim to be God in human flesh. That's what provoked the authorities. I'm going to turn you to Matthew. Let me just, many places we could go, but we'll just turn you to Matthew chapter 10. Be reminded of this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. 
The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. He answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 59. Ultimately, ultimately, the formal charge that gets him crucified is his claim to be God. Matthew 26 and verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. I put you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power and And coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a combination of Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, verse 13, the Son of Man. Then the high priest, verse 65, tore his robe and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. He has declared himself to be God. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Pharisees are in an irresolvable dilemma. An irresolvable dilemma. If they answer that David called him Lord because he is God, then they cannot object to Jesus as David's son of the flesh claiming to be God. They would have to examine the scriptures. 
They'd have to examine the, the evidence of Jesus' life. And that's a task they are not willing to do. Their minds are made up. They've already, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up, right? They are not willing to examine. So verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The debates are over. The debates are done. In fact, the the leaders disappear from the gospel narrative at this point. They're gone. They only resurface uh, at his trial. But they're gone. He has vanquished his enemies. He has swept the field clear. I think figuratively we could say that he has put his enemies beneath his feet. Beneath his feet. And by the way, Mark's parallel account, Mark chapter 12, verse 37 says, The large crowd enjoyed listening to him. I bet they did. Everyone likes a good fight. They enjoyed listening to him. They didn't get it either. But they enjoyed it. A good time was had by all. It is so sad. So sad. To have the truth and to be blind. Back to the survey. Back to the survey. This is the United States of America. You have the political right, the civil right, to believe whatever you want about Jesus. You can believe whatever you want or nothing at all. It is your right. And by the way, I would die to preserve that right. The people, your neighbors, your friends, your family members, your co-workers, your, your fellow students, they have a right in America, to believe whatever they want. And it should be that way. It should be that way. But God never grants that freedom. Ever. Ever. Ultimately, The question of who is Jesus is the hinge upon which your eternal destiny turns. In America, you can answer it however you like. Before God, there is only one answer that is acceptable. Only one. The scriptures make Absolutely clear that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. He is the loving Savior of the world. And he is the terrifying judge of mankind. 
You are related to him this morning in one of two ways. He is either your loving Savior or he is your terrifying judge. And there is no middle ground. None. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In the evangelical church of our day, it's a question that's not often being asked. A lot of assumptions about who is Jesus. And there aren't a lot of direct attacks upon his deity. I mean, you could even see that from the survey questions, right? The majority of Americans said that, you know, he is fully divine and fully human. They have no idea what they're saying. Most. But they'll still say it. But I think the problem lies... And I'm talking about within the evangelical church. I'm talking about within the church that that claims to believe the gospel. I think the problem lies is, is that we give lip service to his deity. We call him Lord, right? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what? What I say. That's where I think the problem lies. I think we have reduced him in... Some settings to the, to the status of a friend. He's a friend. He's someone we can go to in our time of need, right? He's someone we can disregard when his will clashes with ours. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? In what sense is he our Lord? If we don't live a distinctively Christian lifestyle, in what sense is he our Lord? In what sense is he our Lord if we, if we lack reverence for him? In what sense is he our Lord if we feel good about neglecting his word? Or his church. In what sense is he our Lord? Beloved, we need to capture again a sense of awe, a sense of reverence for this one. The Nicene Creed of the fourth century says he is very God of very God. Very God of very God. The Lord Jesus Messiah. May God help us. May God help us to understand the implications Of what that means. And may he pour his grace upon us. To apply the truth of it. To our lives. Let's pray. Father. 
the mystery of godliness. The Apostle Paul says, in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law. He says in Philippians that Christ humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He stepped into space and time. God, a very God, took to himself human flesh to live among us as the God-man, to satisfy the holy requirements of your law on behalf of a people who could never satisfy them and to die a bloody, cruel death as your righteous wrath for all the accumulated sin of your people through the ages was hung on his humble brow. And you raised him again from the dead. You exalted him to your right hand. You declared for him to sit while you put his enemies beneath his feet. You will send him again. When he comes this time, it will not be as that humble servant, that bondservant. He will come with eyes blazing with fire. And he will judge the living and the dead. God, help us to get a glimpse of that reality, to believe it. And through your spirit, pour your grace upon us. That we could embrace it and live accordingly. We ask in the name of this resurrected one, Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord. Amen.